read God's Word. We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 30, I'm sorry, 43 this morning as our primary text, and we're going to be instructed there together briefly. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, so let's hear the Word of the Lord together. He led me to the gate, the one that faces east, and I saw the glory of God, I mean the God of Israel, coming from the east. His voice sounded like the roar of a huge torrent, and the earth shone with his glory. The vision I saw was like one I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the ones that I had seen by the Kabar Canal, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple by way of the, of the gate that faced east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And when the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from the temple. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet, where I will dwell among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel and their kings will no longer defile my holy name by their religious prostitution or by the the corpses of their kings at their high places. Whenever they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only a wall between me and them. They, will, um, they were defiling my holy name by the detestable acts they committed, so I destroyed them in, their, in my anger. Now let them remove their prostitution in the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. As for you, son of man, describe the temple in the house of Israel so that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Let them measure its pattern and they will be ashamed of all that they have done. Reveal the design of the temple to them, its layout with all of its entrances and its exits, its complete design along with all of its statutes, design specifications and laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may observe its complete design and all its statutes and may carry them out. This is the law of the temple. All its surroundings, territory on top of the the mountain will be especially holy. Yes, this is the law of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. Well, we are rapidly uh, descending upon our final time in Ezekiel. We've been working on this since August, and uh, we are finally coming to the final two sermons today and next week, where we will uh, put a bow, if you will, on our time in Ezekiel. And I'm super excited about the sermon series that, that follows this, which is 1 Corinthians. If you didn't get the, the video that went out on email this week, it's, we're really excited about that series. It'll take us some time to get through it. Um, but it's going to be especially helpful, I think, as we continue to explore what it means to be a healthy church and, um, and, and remain a healthy church and to examine those things that tend to uh, uh, prevent the church from its health for the future, and so I'm excited about that series, but, but we still have work to do here in Ezekiel, and I'm excited to, 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 to put uh, a final, kind of said, bow on our time together in these next two weeks. Now, if you wanted to uh, summarize Ezekiel under two broad themes, you would find that verses, I mean, chapters 1 through 33 was primarily about judgment, and then these last chapters, 34 through the end of 48, would be primarily about restoration. That God is judging his people for their failure to worship him rightly and to give themselves to the idols of the other nations. And he but nonetheless keeps his promises, keeps his covenant to restore a people for himself. 
And that primarily we've seen from 34 up until this time. And if you really wanted to put the Bible under three broad questions, we find those three broad questions being asked and answered in our time in Ezekiel. The first question, um, we would have to, the Israelites might have been asking, and, and certainly we would be asking in our day, would be, what will be done to rid the world of sin? That's a question that the Bible looks at, examines, and answers in multiple different ways. And certainly Ezekiel has been asking that and has answer, answering that question, particularly as we saw that last week in chapters 38 and 39. Second question that uh, the Bible continues to um, ask in, in, in some ways for the people of God, the, the question that's on our souls of all people, is will God dwell with us again? Can, can we be near to God? Can God be near to us? And we're going to, set to try to answer that question this morning. In, four, in chapters 40 through 46. And then the last question that really the Bible answers, asks and answers, and Ezekiel does too, is will we have a home again? Is there a home for God's people? One that is sure, one that it will never fade, no one that will never go away. And that will be next week, 47 and 48 primarily. You could have done 40 through 48 one spot, but I just felt like we need to break it down into those primary questions and examine them likewise. Now over the last... Over the next two weeks, we're going to take these two questions, and there we will find what the little tagline of our sermon has been the entire time to answer, promise of paradise. That's, if, we haven't said much about it recently. We did it in the first part of our series, but the promise of paradise is the theme of Ezekiel. It's the primary theme, that in spite of judgment, in spite of sin, God still promises paradise for his people. He still promises to be with his people. He promises to rid the world of sin. He promises to give us a home. And then this last two weeks, we're going to look at the promise of paradise in two ways. First, in the restored presence and glory of God, i.e. today, as we look at this grand picture of the temple, vision of the temple. And then we will look next week at the promise of paradise by which God establishes a forever home for his people. So you have the paradise of God's presence, and then you have the paradise of God's home or God's house. So that's what we're going to do these next couple of weeks. Today, we want to look at this vision of the temple that we find here in chapters 40 through 46. I won't be able to obviously go through it line by line. We'll go an overview of it. And we want to look at the promise of paradise, of restored presence and glory of God. And here's the main idea we're going to find this morning. The future temple is that place where God's renewed presence and glory will reside with his people because of Jesus. Say that again. The future temple... This vision is that place where God's renewed presence and glory will reside in God's people through Jesus. That the temple, saying it in short terms, is a, this picture of the temple is a picture of God's new sanctified people, which he rests his presence in. And that is only through the presence of Jesus and through the work of Jesus that that's even possible. Okay, And that hopefully will become more clear as we go through our time. Now, again, I've already said we're going to focus most of our attention on four, chapter 43, 1 through 12. Because simply seven chapters, you don't want me to preach through seven chapters for the next four or five hours, do you? Um, and so I trust that you guys are good students of the Word of God and you can uh, commit it to your own personal reflections. In fact, I have an article that will help you understand some things from a, a, a Reformed Baptist brother out there in the table in the, in the corridor um, that will help you understand kind of why I take the position that I take. And it's very similar to my positions that we're going to be talking about here this morning. 
But nevertheless, even if we can't hit every line, every word in chapters 40 through 46, we can grasp the central point of, the new te- of this new temple vision um, by laying out the essential sequence of the prophecy for a few minutes before putting our primary attention on chapter 43, okay? That's my aim. It's just kind of put a real quick glimpse on the sequence of this vision so that you and I get a grasp of what's happening here, even though I cannot go through it point by point. Well, the vision begins in chapter 40 um, with Ezekiel being carried off to a high mountain, okay? And already, just by the fact that he's going to this high mountain, it should signal to us that there's something far greater that, that he was going to see in this new temple than the temple he himself had so much experience with as a trained priest. So what we're seeing here is something different than perhaps the temple that they'd always known. It was something, an advancement on the temple, an advancement on the new Jerusalem, um, that he would have, that would have been different or greater than what he would have experienced as someone who had been trained as a priest prior to his Babylonian exile. And the reason why we know that is because this high mountain that he's being swept off to just doesn't exist in geography. Like there were no high mountains around Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was was built on a relatively low mountain for for that um, for that fact. Okay. But in the vision, this high mountain overlooks a great city on the southern slope, it says, of the mountain, on the eastern southern slope of the mountain. And in the midst of this city, there's this great temple. And thus, Ezekiel is taken on a guided tour of this vision of this new temple and is given vivid detail. Again, I have to commend this to your own reading, okay, because we could spend hours upon hours upon hours on this. But I trust that you will be, hopefully your interest will be stoked to be able to go into this on your own. And though, he, um, and though Ezekiel does not expressly say this in the chapters 40 through 46, it is pretty clear that this is the new Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem, this great city on the southern slope, but it's not the same Jerusalem that they had always known. Like I've told you many times in my preaching and teaching, is that the Bible has this field of types and antitypes, and these types point to something greater, and Jerusalem is always pointing to something greater, and the temple is always pointing to something greater, and all these sacrifices were always pointing to something greater. And so what we see here is a new and better Jerusalem. What we see here is a new and better temple, one that the Jewish people would have largely been unfamiliar with. And And it was the epicenter of this vision And at the epicenter of this vision, we'll see when we get to chapter 43, is that God is now returning back to his temple. God is returning back to his holy city. And so again, just to do a quick exhaustive overview of the guided tour, here's what we'll find. Verses chapter 40 through basically to the end of chapter chapter 40 is this kind of moving from the outer gates into the inner outer court going through the inner gates into the inner courts, and just all this elegant detail. And so by the end of chapter 40, what we should be seeing by the, by the time we get to, to the first chapter of this section is that by design, there's already something, something clear happening that, that these Jews had no concept of and that we'd have no concept of, that there's, there's, a, there's a scope, there's a size, there's an attention to detail that has never been realized in the temple both previous to this time and what would come after this time, okay? Like when you look at the scale and the detail and the measurements that we see throughout this time, this is not the temple that has ever been built on holy ground in Jerusalem, ever. This is something very, very different. And then we get into chapter 40, into chapter 40 and go through 41, and we just look at the, at the temple. There's this detailed 
uh, picture of the temple. And I just want to note a few things about this because this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning in terms of the, the relationship of the temple and the relationship of the altar and all those things that we're going to be talking about. First, it just gives you the perfection of the temple. Just the, the, the detail and the perfection that exists. It's a meticulous care given to the design of the temple that conveys the importance, and if you get this, the importance of our worship. God has always been zealous. He's always been jealous for our worship. And the temple and this design, this meticulous care given to to the temple just is God's way of, of, through the prophet Ezekiel, to remind his people, people the importance of proper worship to God by the community of God. Okay? But not only is it perfection, it's beauty. It gives you such great detail about the beauty. It's a refreshing oasis, you might say, um, that worship is to God's people. That that when this this perfection of this place where we're supposed to worship, it offers us refreshment like we've never known before when we engage God the way God calls us to engage Him. When God we engage God the way God has designed us to engage Him. So we we look it's perfection, it's beauty, but also it's symbol. It's symbol. The main event of the temple, and we'll see this here in just a couple minutes, was the sacrifices offered in this temple. And how these sacrifices um, were there to show forth that at the very center of worship to God, God offers a pathway to be near to Him, which is through the what? The repentance of sin and and the atonement for sin that is needed in order for us to have a pathway to the presence of God. So this, these, these temple and these sacrifices were there in the temple to point to people the necessity of what would happen so them, for them to be in God's presence. And then we get to chapter 43, 1 through 12. And what we're going to examine here in just a few minutes, the return of God's glory. This vision of the temple, for it to truly comfort God's people, must provide that one essential aspect of Israel's hope, which is what? That God would be with them. What good is it to worship a God who's not with them? And, and so the good, a, good, a good Jewish person would have known, okay, great, beautiful, but, but God, if you're not with us, what's the point of all this pomp and circumstance? And God says, because I'm with you. And so 43 gives us the outline of him coming back to his people, and he's dwelling with them. Now remember, early back in chapter 10, we saw the reverse of this, right? God has left the temple. He's judged the temple. He's destroyed Jerusalem. He's allowed to see Jerusalem be destroyed by its, their, their, their uh, enemies. And, he's, and the vision shows him moving, his glory moving into the east. This picture, which is a picture of the future we'll talk about here in just a moment, is a picture of God now returning from the east and forever and ever and ever dwelling with his temple, his people of God, because of the finished work of his son Jesus. Okay? And then just to kind of cap off chapter 43, which we won't get into in too much detail this morning, we have the picture of the altar. We've talked about that already. And just the detail there, the steps, the, the importance that, must, you know, that we must put in place in front of God's people, the importance of what it means for us to bring our offering to the Lord and, and that his wrath must be appeased. That's what the altar represents. God's wrath must be appeased for sin. The sprinkling of blood, that there's no forgiveness. The good Christian knows this. There's no, there's no forgiveness for, of sins without the shedding of blood. Our Savior Jesus shed his blood for us. 
The burning of the sin offering outside the sanctuary represents the fact that it's a place of holocaust on unholy ground. In other words, Christ, remember, Christ suffered what? Where? Outside of the city on that cross so that he, he, that he could make his people holy by his own blood. He's not only the, 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 the mediator, mediating sacrifice, but he's also the scapegoat. And then there's this use of salt on the altar. Salt is a what? It's a preservative, right? And it's an Old Testament symbol of covenant. Salt was always an Old Testament symbol of covenant that God would not forsake his promise to forgive sin. So you put all these things together, and what God has given him is this grand vision of the finality of the day when he comes back to rest with his, his holy people that he has redeemed through his son Jesus, and he will be with them forever in their new home, which we'll look at next week, the new home aspect of next week. That's what we see here. There's many people who have tried to take different takes on this, and that's okay. We, we, can, we can agree to disagree on some of these things, but some would say, well, this was, this was a picture of the post-exilic temple, so when they go back in 70 years, this is going to be a picture. This is God promising that they're going to rebuild the temple. But the, but the problem with that is um, that there was no temple built, rebuilt after this point that had such magnificent detail and scale. There was nothing that even came close to it. There was no temple described in this vision ever built prior to this, nor after this, at this to least up to this moment in time that we live in today. See, the dimensions don't fit anything that we know of Solomon's temple, as grand and greater as it was, great as it was, nor Herod's temple either, or anything in between. There is way more here than meets the eye. Nor do I think also, although this is a future temple that it's looking at, it's not necessarily a physical structure whereby the reinstitution of sacrifices will happen. I don't believe that there's a time coming when this temple will be reconstructed in a physical place whereby institute, like sacrifices will be instituted to King Jesus because to be honest with you, that would be an, that would be an affront to our King Jesus. You know Why? Because he's the first and, fi- and he is the final sacrifice we need for all things in our salvation. So that's not what we see here either. In fact, that would be directly contradict Hebrews chapter 10 if you want to look at that, verses 8 and 10 if you want to. So what do we do with this? Well, I think the best way to understand Ezekiel 40 through 48 in general, and particularly 40 through 46, is that as one author I read this week, Derek Thomas, uh, a pastor in South Carolina, theologian, said, this is like an impressionistic painting. It's an impressionistic painting whereby God shows us in the Old Testament a reflection of something that's coming in the New Testament, and ideally, Revelation 21 and 22. Again, that's the reason why I've given about 15 copies of an article out there if you want to read through this so that in case I'm not quite as clear this morning, you can go back and read it. It's very good, it's a very short article. But the reason why I think this is an impressionistic painting of a future reality that we see in Revelation 20 through 20, 21 through 22, well, let's just read a few portions of, of, of Revelation, shall we? 21, 10 through 21 says this, We, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, sound familiar? And showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven from God, again on the southern slope, having the glory of God, its radiance like a, rare, a most rare jewel, like a, jasper, like, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Verse 13, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, 
and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod. So if you go back to chapter 40, there, the man who's guiding him through this has got like, like measuring tools, and he's showing them how the grandeur of this whole thing. He had a measuring rod. Um, a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and, and, and height are equal. And he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is an, an angel's measurement, measurement. Excuse me. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure, was pure gold, like clear glass, verse 19. Second, sapphire, and third, a gate, a gate, and fourth, emerald, and fifth, onyx, and sixth, uh, carnelian, and seventh, uh, chrysolite, and eighth, beryl, and ninth, topaz, and tenth, chrysoprase, and eleventh, uh, Jake, I think it's jacinth, and twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of, them, of these gates made a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now, I'll stop there for a second. Go back and read chapter 40 and just grasp the similarities in the way in which this is described. The attention to detail in both these passages, but back in 40, chapter 40 through 46, it, 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 appears, it appears tedious to us. Like you read it, like I was reading it, and it was kind of like, this is really hard to read. It's very, it's too much detail. It's, it's so much specifics in there. And it may not be very interesting to the average reader, but when you begin to compare and contrast the two, you start to see that this is a picture of hope for something that's coming greater in the future. And God's inviting his exilic people in Babylon to look through the temple, to look through its structure, something that they were very familiar with and was precious to them to what the temple ultimately pointed forward to. And who is that? Jesus and his redeemed bride, the church. When you look at the temple, you must always look through that. This is, this is God through the, the prophet Ezekiel inviting us to look through this structure and look through this type into the ultimate antitype, who is Jesus and his redeemed bride, the church. Again, I commend that article to you if you want more detail on that. So then Jesus, as we, if you really want to, I think, believe, I believe in my, all my heart as I've been studying this, Jesus in the New Testament church is the typical fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy here. When you look at this, we must look at this as Jesus and his church. That Ezekiel's vision was a kind of type of a Christian believer, i.e. Jesus being the antitype of that, the one who would come and do what you and I can't do for ourselves, what Adam failed to do, and he becomes the, the great one who keeps the law for us on our behalf. And he also has in this vision a picture, a type of a new people, believe the New Testament church, who are now the new temple of God, where he dwells with them personally through the Holy Spirit, and then one day, grandly, finally and fully, as this is at the end. And so I think when we look at this properly, we certainly see this as something that is yet to come. We talked about it last week, that these last three sequences, are, are, these last few chapters are all about God, uh, Ezekiel looking forward and, saying, and, and answering those questions. I won't deal with sin. I'm going to come be present with you. And I'm going to give you a home forever. And all these are looking forward, even forward from where we stand right now, although there's some overlap already but not yet here, right? That even now as God's people, we know that God's presence rests in us and around us by, by what? The indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. 
that carries us on to the consummation of that fullness of his presence one day in glory. So the big idea here then in verses in chapters 40 through 46 is, is pretty simple if you want to sum it down to one, just a few words, is God will restore his presence and glory among his people. Now we can agree and disagree on a number of different aspects of what I've just said, but the reality is I think all of us have to agree that this is what this is all about, that God will be with his people and he will restore his presence and his people don't deserve that presence, but he has done everything necessary so that his people might be redeemed so that they can enjoy his presence forever and ever and ever. Now we're going to hit chapter 43. Because now we have to answer the question is, then why did you give us this vision? Why is this relevant to you and I today? Why do believers need to return back to such complicated texts like Ezekiel 40 through 46 regularly? Well, I think in 43, 1 through 12, we see two reasons. And I'll just give them to you briefly. To focus our hope in the coming fullness of God's presence and to find our rest in the already nearness of God, God's presence. So there's two aspects that we see in these, these next 12 verses that I think will help us. It's to focus our hope on the coming fullness of God's presence. So there's something that we're laying hold of and we're, we're keeping our hope on. But there's also, like, that's not just something future, but that we now find our present rest in the already nearness of God's presence, namely through the person and work of Jesus, who is the God who's come in flesh, as well as the residing presence of the Holy Spirit in us. So let's look at our first point there. In fact, let me just read again chapter 43, these first few verses there. And he, and he led me to the gate, one that is face cease, and I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east, and his voice sounded like a roar of a huge torrent, and the earth shone with his glory. The vision I saw was like the one I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the one I had seen by the Kabar Canal, and I fell down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple by the way of the gate that faced the east. So the same gate that he left, he's returning to. And just keep on tracking the idea here. He entered the temple by the way of the gate, the gate that faced east. And then the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And while the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from the temple. So in other words, what we see here, the first thing we see here in this first point of focusing on that hope to come is, number one, that the glory of the Lord returns to the temple. But there's a promise here that you and I must constantly take hold of, put our weight on. The glory of the Lord returns to the temple. And, and him coming from the east is significant in a couple of different ways. Number one, this is the gate that Ezekiel saw God leave the temple from, as I mentioned just a second ago. That's why this is important. God's glory was moving east. He rejected his people. He judged his people. And he went east in the direction, as we would say, of Babylon. Remember this. This is just something that you've got to pick up as you read the Old Testament. That when, when the fall happened in Eden, where did the people move to? East of Eden. And God's people, you know, spiritually have been living east of Eden since that time. And so the, the idea here is that God has went east and he's went out and about and he's come home and his redemptive prerogative has been complete. He went out. He didn't just reside there in Jerusalem. He went out, and as he comes back, the completion of all that God has endeavored to do through his grand work of redemption is now complete. And when he comes back into that gate, it is to imply that he will remain there forever. 
See, the temple in Jerusalem were a type of also an anti-type of the garden. So the garden was a type. It was an anti-type found in, the, in Jerusalem, in the temple. And the Jerusalem temple were an anti-type of the new heavens and the new earth, the new temple, the new Eden. Does that make sense? You see how the progress of the, of the narrative of Scripture keeps pointing us to this point of what has went wrong outside of the garden. And outside of the garden, now God is bringing back home. And all of God's people who've been longing to go back had West young man. You've heard me say that, right? This is the, the longing of every human heart. The, the idea of heading west was so I could be with God's presence forever and ever and ever. And so that's the first significant aspect of this. But also to remember this, we need to understand this is a future reality. It, it would mean that God's glory and presence moving east is a picture of him working out his redeeming purposes, perhaps, as he's as he's dwelling there, and he's, and he's moving and roving so he can call his elect home, his elect exiles home, and now his final return signals that he's done that, and his people will be with him forever and ever as his holy temple. His final return is the fulfillment of the work of redemption whereby God has built his full and final temple that is his new people. But it's not just that. Keep on reading with me there in Verse um, 7. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell among the Israelites forever. So in other words, the second thing we need to see in this first point of casting our hope forward, casting our hope for this future fulfilled presence and full presence of God is that his presence is permanent. That God... Minces no words with you and I. We are his exilic people now, living as humble pilgrims waiting on that day to come. We have a great hope to lean on, that he will one day and his presence will be full and it will be final. Now, indeed, it's now the work of the Holy Spirit in us, yes, in the preaching of God's word and the Son made flesh. But there's still something yet to come. And you and I will enjoy it, and it's beyond our comprehension. The Son of Man, it says there in verse 6, is that this is the place of my throne and my soul. I, I, this is my home. This is where I'm going to plant my stakes. You know, we all want somewhere to plant our feet. And God says, you plant your feet where I plant my feet. You plant yourself where my throne is, and I will be with you forever. Again, just seeing how this overlays with Revelation 21 and 22, verses 1 through 4 of, of, of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first one and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What is the temple? God's presence with his people. The temple is God's people who now reside with God. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. But we're still not done. His presence is with us now. His presence comes in and it's permanent, but also his presence is sanctifying. 
7 through 9, oh, I'm sorry, uh, 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 10 through 12. Well, actually, let's, let's just pick up in the second part of verse 7. I will dwell among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel and their kings will no, longer, will no longer defile my holy name by their religious prostitution and by the corpses of their kings at their high places. Whenever they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorpost next to my doorpost with only a wall between me, they were defiling my holy name by the detestable acts that they had committed. So I destroyed them. In other words, what it's saying here is that they will no longer have sin rule over them. That this people will no longer be consumed. You can, isn't that a praise? That our struggle with sin will one day end. God will end it. God will end the reign of sin forever among his people. There will be no more defilement of his holy name. No, our sanctification results from our faith in and proximity to God's, to God himself, and particularly through Christ, his son. And to the degree that you and I are staying near to, that, to Jesus and staying near to, to, to the promises of God, we can be assured that one day when he returns, there will be no more tears because of our sin, brothers and sisters. No more sin. Again, Revelation 21, 5 through 8 Love this. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Sounds like he's sanctifying things, yes? As he said, write it down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexual immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, which is the second death. How are we made new according to this text? How are we sanctified? Through the spring of water of life that we get without payment. Right there in verse 6, Jesus is the spring of life that washes away our sins and he does so with no payment on our behalf. He made the payment. Brothers and sisters, he made this payment. So where the old kings set their doorposts and their thresholds next to God and they continue to sin, no, we set our doorposts and our thresholds with God because of Jesus. And what he has accomplished. And we rest in that. And we thrive on that. And we keep moving forward in that as we wait for that day to come. But remember though, it's not just that we always got to look forward, which we should. But we must look now and find our rest in the already nearness of God's presence. And that's what these last verses, 11 through 13, I'm sorry, 10 through um, 12 actually show us. Let's, let's read it together. As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel so that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Let them measure its patterns and they will be ashamed of all that they have done. Reveal the design of the temple to them. It's layout with its exits and entrances. It's complete design along with all of its statutes, design and specifications and laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may observe its complete design and all its statutes and may carry them out. 
what is our hope now? What is our rest now? Our rest and our now is what? Repentance and faith. Repentance from sin that's shamed us and kept us in shame. And faith in the one who takes our shame away. Jesus. And it's not rest that's just inactivity. See, some of us think that we're just kind of impassive. And somehow, no, we just, there doesn't mean that there's not activity in our part. But Hebrews 8 I'm sorry, Hebrews 4, 11 through 13, give us another picture. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. What does that mean? Well, let's keep reading. So that no one may fall to the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. So the picture that we see here in verses 10 through 12 is a striving to enter that rest that is characteristic of God's people this day as we wait on that day, right? There's a repentance and faith. That word shame is a big, big word. It's not a very popular word in our day-to-day, is it? We live in a world where we, they hate the idea of shame. In fact, the world would like to just rid the world of the idea of shame. But shame is not a bad thing. There is indeed bad shame, and there is indeed good shame. Bad shame is the kind of shame in which it controls our behavior in such a way that we can't find help or healing. That we, shame is bad when we allow sin to have control over our lives as Christians and never live in the freedom that we've been given in Christ. So then there is a bad shame whereby we don't live openly and transparently with the brothers and sisters in Christ and to stand before Christ with, with hope and courage because we have full, unremitted, uh, um, unmitigated access to the king and the throne room, that's bad shame. And so if we're in a place of sin this morning, whereby we're ashamed to bring our sin to the cross of Christ and bring it to the throne room of God who, which Christ opened up for us, then that's bad shame. And that kind of shame will kill you and in fact, it is this kind of shame that is killing our world. But there's good shame. There's good shame we see in 1 Corinthians where it says, it says the idea that that which brings us face to face with our sin and face to face with the holiness of God and allows us to repent freely and to live in full assurance of what Christ has accomplished. Like, friends, when we are ashamed of our sin to the point that it brings us face to face with Christ, that is a good shame. And it's the kind of shame that should, God's people should never be afraid of. Should never be afraid of that. God wants his people to feel the shame of our neglect of worshiping him and our neglect of drawing near to him and our neglect of his love of his law so that we find freedom that we have been granted to us in Christ. But in this passage, verses 10 through 12, it gives us a pattern of faith and repentance that I think is very important for us to pay attention to. Notice that it says, show them the details of the temple. Show them who God is. Show them how God has designed how you are to relate to him. Is this not the one of the main patterns of repentance and faith in the life of the believer, the, a rightly un, right understanding of worship? I mean, that's what it says there. 
They will be ashamed. Why? As they reveal the design of the temple and its layout and it shows the laws and the goodness of God. Right orderly ordered worship should be at the center of a life that is living, lived out in faith and repentance. When we neglect right ordered worship, whether it's the church doing it on their own or we ourselves neglect the, the gathering of God's people on the Lord's day on a regular basis, we do so to our own peril. That one of the ways we work out faith and repentance is to come weekly with the God's people, with God's people, and engage in God-ordered worship that He has given to us, and we hear God's word exposited for us and unpacked for us, and we sing God's word and we pray God's word. Why? For our repentance and for our faith. That's why God's people and why we should never neglect these things. And when we do, we should run. We should run after people who start neglecting these things. If God, I mean, God forbid it happens for any of us in here, but when it does, if it does, we should run after those people and tell them the peril that is, that is, that is coming to them if they do not turn and return back to worship. Not that worship itself saves us, by the way, but it's one of God's means of grace by which he sanctifies us in repentance and faith. God has shown us how to worship him, and we need to take heed of that. We're not free to rearrange biblical worship as we will. We, are, we seek to be very deliberate in our elements of worship here at Grace Church. Not because they're things that we've invented. You know, I, I, put, a little word, I put a little picture out there on Facebook earlier this week. I think it alarmed some people. It had fog juice from Party City. And some of you guys are like, mm, uh, no, no, I don't, no, thank you. No, I don't, I'm not free to invent what I want in worship. Neither are you. God is not equally honored in anything that we conjure up in our mind. No, God is honored when we do what he calls us to do and worship him the way he calls us to worship him, primarily through the elements of preaching the word and singing the word and praying the word and doing it collectively and, 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 and celebrating the ordinances. Why is worship so important? Because I think it's from there, it leads us to, shows us who God is and how we are to relate to him. And that's what it says. Shows a complete design along with all the statutes, design specifications, and laws. Write it down in their sight so they may observe it and complete its complete design and its statutes and may carry them out. Worship, good worship, spurs us on to good living. Righteous living. It grows our love for his law. That's, the, that's what repentance and faith does. It, it, it is, it's, it's supported by right worship and a love for God's law. The fruit of proper worship is a deeper love for God, a deeper love for his ordinances and his law. Those who have a, a gospel with no law have a truncated gospel. This doesn't mean that we are saved or we prove that we are saved by how rightly we keep the law or how rightly we worship God, but it means that our affections for God's ways are ever increasing in our life as we rightly worship him. Does that make sense? So let's finish up. What do we do with it now? How might we live in such a way with our hope fixed on heaven, hope fixed on a day when his presence is with us forever and ever? How do we live right now? Let's just sum it up. Number one, our worship must take God seriously. If we're not taking God seriously, our worship is not serious. It should be the centerpiece of what we do as God's people. 
should be. Two, our love for God's law must progressively increase as we wait upon the Lord. We're going to swap. We were talking about it in our new members class. We're going to walk with a limp. We might see long seasons of progress in our life as we're moving towards our, you know, our new fulfillment of Christ, our fullness in Christ when he returns. And that's fine. And that's great. But there will be pits and there will be valleys. Right? And just because we're on these pits and valleys doesn't mean that we've fallen completely away. But if the trajectory should be pointing northward, right? So there should be a love for God's law that is progressively increasing in our hearts as we wait on that day when Jesus returns. This should be the pattern. This is what the people of the world should see in our lives, a seriousness, a love, an affection, not a seriousness about ourselves. We don't take ourselves that seriously. If you've been around grace very long, you know we laugh a lot. We make a little of ourselves quite a bit, but we do take God seriously and we do take his law seriously. So we laugh a lot knowing that it's not about us, it's about God. And then last, our hope right now, you leave this room and you, and you anchor yourself in the fact that you are setting your affections and you're setting your sights for God's eternal presence until he returns. That you must range that. And I'm going back to Revelation 21 again. I saw no, no temple in the city. Saw no temple in the city. For his temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings on, uh, of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory... In the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is a test of the Lord, but those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Brother and sister, your hope right now is not in you. It's not in a certain set of circumstances. It's not in a certain thing, sequences of events to happen. But it's in your hope, is in the fact that you, resting and trusting in Christ, Worshiping him for who he is and how he has called you to worship him. Loving what he says is good. Hating what he says is evil. As we grow in these things and we remain sure as exile pilgrims that one day the king and his glory are coming back and all those who he has said come are going to be right there with him. Those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Jesus, help us as we finish our time, as we prepare for the Lord's table again together, as we do each week. Help us, Jesus, to think of these things with much more joy, much more satisfaction, much more assurance than we perhaps may have come in this morning with. Father, thank you for your people. Thank you for what you're doing in this church. And may you continue to bless and grow and increase this church so that your name will be made great and your people will be, will, will be a display of your goodness. In Christ's name we pray.